Well, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus has entered triumphantly into Jerusalem's gates. He's entered into the temple. He's inspected it. He's cursed the fig tree. He's entered the temple again, cleansing or clearing the temple for the Gentiles, if you remember. And then last week, of course, we dealed with this whole question of whose authority do you do this by, right? And of course, Jesus gives them a question. They can't answer it. They eventually, uh, they eventually concede to Jesus saying, we do not know. And so he says, I will not answer your question. And so on the heels of all of this, you can understand the tension that's growing between Jesus and these religious leaders, what we call the Sanhedrin, right? The chief priests, the scribes, um, and the Sadducees, and et cetera, right? So these people are conflicting. They're getting at each other. A hallmark of life in Toronto, a hallmark of it, at least in recent history, uh, I'm sure it's not too foreign for many of us here who've been you know, trying, especially those who got married in the last few years, looking for a home to, to buy or to stay in. Uh, the reality of Toronto life, or a hallmark of it is what? The current state of housing and the reality of renting homes in the city. For many decades, the immigrant life in North America and life in general included this dream, right? To move here and one day own a home. It's sort of a rite of passage, if you will, right? It's graduate, get a degree, get a job, get married, buy a home, or have a kid, buy a home, retire, Etc. Right. That's so, so like that kind of typically summarizes uh, what we refer to as this American dream, if you will. Right. Now, I don't think you need to own a home, right, ever in your life to consider your life a success, uh, but it certainly helps, right, on a practical level. It helps to own property, to have a place to live in, and not worry about your landlord having you know kicking you out, right, or having to leave your home on the grounds of someone else's terms. Now, the current statistics say that Torontonians will, on average, around, will be around 36 years of age by the time they can even begin to afford a house. I turned 36 in like two months, so I got two months to buy a house. Now, that's the highest it has ever been in history, in the history of the city and the country. And there are many reasons or factors as to why that is. For many of us, we will be renting homes for the foreseeable future. It's not to say, you know, you're a lesser human because of this. It's just the reality of the city we live in, right? And uh, being a tenant means this. You have a landlord, the one who owns the unit in which you live. They paid for the home, and by contractual agreement, they are renting out their home to you at a monthly cost, right? Now, here's an interesting fact about our parable today. The very same principle or practice existed in Palestine, in Israel-Palestine at this time. And it was called the absentee land ownership practice. And it would apply even to land for commercial use, land rented for commercial use, as we see in today's parable, such as agricultural farming. And so the central image of Jesus' parable today draws on this principle, which, by the way, is the first significant parable Mark has shared to us, parable of Jesus that Mark has shared to us, since chapter 4. And this uh, very practice of land, absentee land ownership is the very sort of setting that Jesus sets up. He sets sort of this principle as sort of the central um, image of his parable, right? It sets up the whole parable if, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and it doesn't really take too much thinking to realize what the parable means, right? You don't have to be a biblical scholar to figure this out. In fact, a lot of the parable tells you what it means. It was clearly evident to the Jewish leaders who were listening who felt that Jesus was criticizing them. So they figured it out right away. 
Now, coming off a series of temple visits where Jesus has been highly critical, to say the least, of the religious leaders, heightened messianic expectations. Remember where they're crying out, like, Hosanna, Hosanna, right? The king has come, all that stuff. Um, so heightened messianic expectations from the public crowd, tension with the religious leaders, and a clear desire and plot on the religious leader end to have Jesus killed and destroyed uh, with one of the most religious days on the Jewish calendar, Passover on the horizon, Jesus chooses to give us what essentially is another passion prediction. And it's in the form of a powerful parable that really is more of a reminder of what is promised to God's people in the Old Testament more than it is a prediction of what will come. He's already predicted this three times. And it is this parable that will continue to build the tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. So let's, let's examine today's text. And I, all I've got to, for you today is two points. Two points are as follows. The first, a slave is sent, verses 1 to 5. And then, a beloved son is sent, verses 6 to 12. So I just divided the text into six verses each. 1 to 5, 6 to 12. Slave is sent, beloved son is sent. Let's look at the first point, verses 1 to 5. A slave is sent. The parable at hand is, has simple elements to it. There's a landlord who plants a vineyard. He protects it with a wall. He also builds a wine press and a tower. And some of you in your translations might, it might say that he dug a vat. A vat is a storage container uh, for the wine. And then he rents it all out to farmers. And, and then he leaves. He goes on a journey. The parable thus far has no problem. There's no issue. That is, until the harvest comes. And it's time for the landlord to collect his yield. Now, of course, he's paying these people to protect and take care of the land and farm on it. But he also wants his right, profit from it. So he sends someone, he sends a slave or a servant to collect from the tenants. And instead of receiving profit, what does the slave receive? He's beaten and sent back empty-handed. This repeats over and over. And some of them are even killed. So the master demands what he is due. The tenants reject his request harshly, all the while enjoying what? Life and profit on his land. Eventually, their evil grows as they kill the slaves and they, uh, that are sent their way, continuing to refuse to give the master what he is rightfully owed. And the one act of indecency would have been enough to warrant their removal from the land and, 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 and receive severe punishment. And yet the master tries over and over and over again, only to be met with harsher and harsher response from these ungrateful tenants. I'd like to read a couple Old Testament passages for you. One is from Isaiah 5 and the other from Jeremiah 7. Here's Isaiah 5. Listen carefully. Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7. If you have trouble hearing this, you can certainly turn to it. It's Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. This is what it says. Let me sing... Now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. But it produced only worthless ones. Now, we've already seen the fig tree episode where the fig tree was supposed to be fruitful and it wasn't. Right? It had leaves. It had sort of this mirage of being fruitful and it wasn't. Jesus approaching the temple, seeing the mirage of religiosity and faithfulness to God, only to find an unfruitful temple. In the same way, here's his vineyard being planted. 
And it's supposed to produce good things for both the tenants and the landlord. And in Isaiah 5, we're already, and if you read the entirety of the chapter, you understand how much, of this, how much this chapter acts as a backdrop to this parable. Jesus is drawing from Isaiah 5 for this imagery. The vineyard that's planted by this owner, and the owner is clearly God the Father. He's planting it. He's expecting it to yield good fruit. And what do we find instead? Worthless, worthless fruit. Nothing. Worthless ones. It produces nothing. Nothing of value. What about Jeremiah 7? Here's verses 25 to 26. It reads this. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, it's referring to the Exodus, I have sent you, I being God, have sent you all my servants and prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they, Israel, did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. So there's that Old Testament backdrop to everything we're reading here in Mark 12. You have Isaiah 5, setting up the parable, Jeremiah 7, speaking to the stiff neckedness of the religious leaders, right? The vineyard, as you can see, is a clear Old Testament image of Israel. Think of it like the garden in Genesis. Then the leaders of Israel are like Adam, who was the first priest, if you will. They are priests and protectors of the garden. What's the purpose of the priest in both Israel and Adam in the garden? It's to keep that place holy, sanctified, set apart, clean. But what has happened is that instead of stewarding the garden, stewarding Israel, and stewarding this vineyard properly, much like Adam, these priests have failed. These leaders, the Jewish Sanhedrin, has failed in Jesus' time. They have, in fact, as we learned in the fig tree episode in Mark 11, defiled Israel. They are the very defilement of Israel itself. They have made it unfruitful. Jeremiah, te Jeremiah tells us that servants of God, the prophets, were consistently and constantly sent their way, and they did not listen to them or to God. And if you read the Old Testament, you know this to be true. Those of you who are maybe starting your Bible reading plans as the new year begins, when you get to it, you'll understand. Prophet after prophet after prophet. It's the same story, and this is one of the reasons why the Old Testament is sometimes so hard to get through. It's 39 books, minus one, all of them basically the same story. God sent, they did not listen, or maybe they do listen for a time period. Next generation comes, or the next season comes, and they're sinning again. Wickedness abundant in Israel, prophets sent, repentance, wickedness again, prophets sent, wickedness. Like, it's constantly the same thing, cyclical, over and over again in the Old Testament. There's one book in the Old Testament, one book, one prophet that is successful. His name is Jonah, and Jonah just happens to be the worst of the prophets, Jonah is the one that doesn't want to do the thing that God tells him to do. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all of those guys are faithful and probably guys that we would look to as being like, hey, those are men of God. Jonah? Certainly not. Jonah's not here, right? I don't mean to roast your name or anything, but anyways, Jonah is certainly not someone you want to replicate in your life, right? You don't want to be the one that's running away from God, trying to not listen to him. Ironically, he's the only one that actually goes to Nineveh, preaches, and they listen. They repent. They turn away right? And it's the Ninevites. It's not the Israelites. 
So you have one unique story in all the Old Testament where the prophet is successful. Every other prophet sent to Israel or Judah failed. It's a short-term Band-Aid solution, or they just completely disregard him. So it's the same story over and over again. That's why your Old Testament reading plan sometimes becomes a little bit dull and mundane. And so you get to a passage like this in Mark 12, and you realize what Jesus is saying. Right? Constantly, consistently sent, they did not listen to them. Now what's important for us to note here is this, is that this parable, right, or we should note in this parable, is that the owner or master does not wreak vengeance on what? The vineyard. The vineyard is an image of Israel, I said, right? So he's not wreaking vengeance on Israel, but on the tenants, the ones who are supposed to take care of it. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the so-called guardians or stewards of the garden have made it their own playground for their own musings. We saw this in the temple cleansing uh, uh, passage. Under the guise of what? Oh, this is the master's purpose. In reality, they are reaping the benefits of that vineyard. And who in the end will cleanse and restore this land of its evil? Why, it's the master, it's the owner. He will enact justice on those who have been unjust. And he will be in every right, he will be in every right to do so. So then who will be rightfully destroyed? The evil tenants. But Jesus gives us an important detail in his parable that points even um, that points to us that even the evil tenants uh, and all of them to a solution to their problem. Whether you're the tenant or whether you're the vineyard or whether you're the one listening to this parable, there's one solution to everyone's problems, and it's this. It's the coming justice of the master in the form of his beloved son. It's this one last act of kindness and love and mercy from God, the owner of that vineyard, who says, surely they will listen to him. But we, of course, know how the story ends. So we get to this beloved son being sent in verses 6 to 12. So here's God sending servant after servant, person after person, prophet after prophet. They reject and kill them. So who does he send but a beloved son in verse 6? God is so gracious to his own that he would not only send his servants to us to simply be messengers or declarers of God's word, thus saith the Lord, as the prophets would say, but he would send his one and only son. One who shares in all he is, one who is not simply representing God, but is God himself. And in verse 6, we are told that he is the last of all to be sent. There will be no one after this. Now, the Muslims will have you believe that Muhammad comes after this about 500 years later, and that, of course, is preposterous. But the last of all is Jesus, this beloved son. And so he is sent. And he will be the one in whom God would entrust all things to be made complete. Now, as soon as you read that, you would think, oh, this is going to be a positive ending, that they would receive him well. Oh, this is the son, the heir. Surely we will listen to this man. But instead, they reject and kill him too. This verse is very much the climax of the parable today. Verse 6. So what differs the servant from the son? Well, we'll bring it to Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 gives us the differentiation. Here's what Hebrews 3 writes about Moses and Jesus. Moses being sort of the preeminent, uh, I guess, forefather of the Jewish faith, right? Moses, David, these are pinnacle figures of the faith. Moses represents the law and the exodus and all, deliverance and all that stuff, right? So here's how the Hebrews author differentiates in chapter 3 between Moses and Jesus. 
Hebrews 3 writes, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ, Jesus, was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. The Hebrews author continues to write in that chapter that the difference between a servant and a son is that the son owns the house. It's the difference between when you go to work and you're just an employee of your company. Sure, you might have some pride in the company that you work for. Certainly, you might have some tie to it. Certainly, you might love the people there. Certainly, you'll do your best, right? Being a good Christian, faithful worker in your home, in your home and in your workplace. And for students, being faithful to the school that is educating you, right? By being a good student. But friends, you don't own your university. You don't own your company, right? And those of you, one day, maybe you do, or one day you will, own something like that, it is vastly different how you will work. It is vastly different. I have a really annoying CEO. I'm going to meet him today at, at our New Year's party, but he's really annoying. He's like, um, so he, I mean, Realford now is like around, what, like 120 stores, right, across North America. That's a big company, right? I think we're evaluated at something like over 600, 700 million dollars as a company, right? So think about it. This Chinese immigrant comes, and he doesn't speak much English, establishes this you know, very simple company, just selling bubble tea and blending mangoes. He's made a $700 million company, right? You would think, at this point, with 120 plus stores in North America, you would just be like, hands off, and be like, hire this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. Go do your job, take care of everything, and I'm just going to chill. No, this guy annoyingly comes into my store almost like every two months. He comes into my store, he's like, do this, change that, clean the floor, change the towels, did it. So annoying. And I'm like, bro, you're a multimillionaire. Why are you here? And he's like, you don't understand, Max. I love this. That's what he told me. He said, I love this. This is my baby. This is mine. See, when you guys come and work, you work for the money that I give you. I don't come here to make money. I love this. That's what he told me. Really annoying boss, but I understood right away. That's the difference between a servant who serves. And Moses was a great guy. He served faithfully. Not totally faithfully, but he did his best as a human being. The beloved son, friends, owns the body of Christ. We are his. You know what Moses would never do for us? He would never die for us. He could never die for the body. Only Jesus could do that. That's the difference. There's an ownership that's different. Because when push comes to shove, Jesus will die that death that you and I deserve. I had an atheist one time ask me, would you tell me the difference between Jesus' love and everyone else's? For I feel like I would die for humanity if I could. And I said, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't die for the sins of those you hate. You wouldn't die for your enemies. You wouldn't die for those who mock you, who hurt you. You wouldn't die for those that you have tension and friction with. You wouldn't die for them. You would only die for the people you like, love, or have neutral feelings about. Anyone you have a negative feeling about, you would not die for them because you value your life too much. Jesus did while we were still his 
enemies. He died for us. You need more proof? Hanging on the cross, what does he declare? His prayer to God is this. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. If I was hanging on that cross, I'd be like, oh yeah, wait till they see where this ends up. These morons, mocking, spitting, spearing my side, telling me to come down if I'm really the son of God. Oh my goodness, I would hang on that cross and I'd be like, you are all screwed. You're so screwed. You're all going to hell. That's not Jesus. Forgive them for they know not what they do. What an incredible thing, friends. That's the difference that the Hebrews author wants us to see. Moses himself spoke of one who would come after him that God would raise up, one who will be listened to. If you read Deuteronomy 18.15, it reads, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. All of Scripture points us to Christ as the promised one of God, who is the last of the prophets, the greatest of kings, the most holy of priests, who will offer himself up as the once-for-all sacrifice for his people. You see, those servants who were sent with good purpose and a good message and good intention, but they could never do what the Son alone could do and did. He alone has the same authority as the one who sent him. Oswald Chambers once said, The dearest friend on earth is a mere shadow compared to Jesus. And so it is with all the prophets, priests, and kings in all of the Bible and all of human history, for they are but mere shadows, mere pointers to the one who is to come. He is, as was declared at his baptism, the beloved one of God. And what do the tenants see in this parable? They see opportunity to claim the heir's throne. So they kill him, to claim what is rightfully his, so they destroy him. They wanted for themselves what was the son's. This is the very heart of the Sanhedrin. What is most disturbing about this parable is that they knew who the son was. There he is, the son of the owner. Let's take what's his. And it was their reason to kill him. When instead, knowledge of who he is should have given them reason to honor him, it is very much the heart that needs reconstruction, friends, before the eyes and ears can see and hear properly. So Jesus says that the owner will come and destroy the destroyers and give the vineyard to others. So it has been. When we look at human history, God has fulfilled this promise. Since 70 AD, no temple has ever been, and the church does not stand under the authority and leadership of the Sanhedrin today. Instead, we stand under the authority of the head that is Christ. And the vineyard has very much been given to others. Look at this room. Not a Jew in, this, not a Jew in sight. The color of the church is not Jewish. It's a mosaic of the nations. Here's a conclusion. So we rest on two points. First, the church is truly God's. He has claimed it. And its members are tied to his son. We are members as a result of being united with Christ. We are also warned of dangers, the dangerous tenants who are removed by God and replaced by the son. Landlords in Toronto will do much the same. Tenants who breach contract will be removed lawfully and are replaced with better tenants. This draws my memory to a conversation I was having with some friends this past week on John 15, where we see the parable of the vine dresser. There we are told that Jesus is the true vine and the father the vine dresser. Only the branches that bear fruit will remain on the vine. The branches that do not bear fruit will be pruned and cut off by the father. Much like today's parable, that also contains a vineyard and vines. Only those who receive the son, abide in the son, the chief cornerstone, will remain as tenants, as branches on the vine that the owner gives. 
Those who reject the Son will be tossed out and destroyed. Jesus ends his telling of this parable with an Old Testament quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 22-23. The cornerstone is, as many of you know, the stone in a structure that holds its frame. It holds up the weight of every other stone, and it acts as the bedrock in some sense of the whole building itself. The building, in other words, rests on this cornerstone. Matthew 7 tells us that one's house can be built either on sand, which will lead to the destruction of that home, or on rock, which will keep the house standing. It is not the quality of the house, but the substance of the foundation that determines its fate. Friends, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is our chief cornerstone. Those who abide in him are built on him. Will they find everlasting life in him, with him forever? He is the one who the psalmist say was rejected. Jesus in his parable says this son was not just rejected but killed. And why? So that he could be our cornerstone. He came about as the Lord had willed. He came that those who placed their faith in him could be redeemed and justified for their sins by the blood of the Lamb. Christ died in their place that they could be saved. And this Jesus has an invitation for all of you to consider today and believe for those who do not. Um, and for those that you, who already do believe this, to remind oneself of the truth of this life-giving gospel that Jesus came, died, and rose from the grave. He is stone that holds us up, ground that does not fail. And one of my favorite hymns, one that I like to sing a lot in the shower, actually, is uh, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. Listen to these lyrics. And I'll end my sermon. My hope is built on nothing less. I don't know why I'm singing this in the shower, by the way. Then Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Inspire our heads in prayer and reflect on what God has taught us.